As I have been uh, laboring all week over this message and studying so hard uh, ever ever since four o'clock, uh, no, I, uh, Adam called me and uh, and asked if I'd preach, and certainly glad to. And uh, immediately, you know, your your mind starts to race. Uh, what should I do, and how am I going to do it? And so, what we're gonna what we're gonna do tonight? We're obviously going to depart from from our series in Timothy, since I'm not at all prepared for that, and what we're going to do tonight is actually a lesson that I taught the kids this morning. I've already been thinking about this. I've already um, been going over it. I've already done some study in it. And so we're going to go somewhere where I've already been studying, only uh, you're, going to get the, you're going to get the adult version. And so John Blakely has already complained. He's like, that means you're not going to do the balloon illustrations that, you're, that you want to do this morning. You're not going to have any fun. You're going to give us the, give us the adult version. But uh, that is what we're going to do tonight. And, and tonight's message, uh, what we've been doing with the kids... Um, partly in the mornings, has really been a study in theology. And so I think tonight will be a particular benefit for all of us, a little different than what we normally do. Uh, and yet a study in theology is not something that's distant from, from any of us. And I, I know you guys have heard us say this before and feel like, feel like we say it all the time, but, but really the, the biblical expectation of every Christian is that all of us are theologians. Uh, that's, not, that's not some kind of um, word that's reserved for someone that goes to seminary or someone who's a doctor, or someone who's a professor. The idea of a theologian is somebody who studies God and God's plans. And that should really, that should really be all of us. Um, theology isn't something that's distant and scary. It's something you do every day when you open up the Word of God and you see that ideas are connected to other ideas and you learn, learn more about God. And what normally happens in a, in a study of systematic theology is you, is you start with one topic and you just start... You just start seeing what the breadth of Scripture has to say about any particular topic. And so we've been studying with the kids uh, the doctrine of man. Um, what, is, what, is the, what does the whole of Scripture have to say about people? And I thought tonight um, this, this would actually be a really helpful study because it's so easy for us to have a wrong perspective of how, how we should view ourselves, how we should view mankind. A lot of times our thinking can be um, twisted by the world in which we live. Right? Um, there are all these ideas that circulate about how we should look at ourselves. And particularly in our day, um, the views of humanism that have, that have taken over, that have elevated man to the, um, to the height. Um, his reason becomes the all-important factor. Um, the idea of that man is, is most important over everything. Um, his ideas are the criteria for determining right and wrong. We have all these ideas about people. We have ideas in our day and age about how people are put together. Um, we have the rise of, of psychology and the studies of how we can get deep into how people are thinking and, and change how they act because we change how they think. There's a lot of views on mankind and how, pe- how we look at people. And yet scripture, as always, should be our authoritative guide for how we understand um, ourselves and ourselves in light of God. Uh, there's also a danger tonight. There's, there's just a twisting that comes with comes with culture, uh, and yet there's, there's kind of a Christian, a Christian twist when we think about ourselves too, uh, and that is that um, something that our church has even set out to do, and that is we, part, of our, part of our commitment is, is to have a biblical view of man, uh, which is pretty much synonymous with a, what we call a low view of man. So we say we have a high view of God, and we have a low view of, of man, and so we try pretty much at, at every juncture to point out repeatedly um, that we are not here to talk about salvation by man's effort. 
All right? So we don't have this perspective of man that he's so great that he's able to save himself with his own good works. Uh, we say the same thing about sanctification. That's something that even Ken just talked about, right? Um, when we leave today, after hearing the messages we heard, if we go out and try to will up some great self-effort and we can do this now, we, I just need to get some incentive, I need to get a little prod, and now I'm just going to try to be better. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do a little bit better this week than I did last week. And, and I can do this thing. And I'm the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I, I'm going to get better. I'm, I, I, come on now. Come on, self. Uh, then what you're going to find is that you're going to have the same frustration and the same failure uh, that you did last week and the weeks before that. Uh, Because we find from Scripture that not that man is capable of saving himself and not even that man is capable of sanctifying himself, but those are works of grace. So that gives us, a, a, in, in contrast to a high view of man, it gives us a low view of man, and yet that needs to be a biblical view because the danger in that is that pretty soon, as soon as we talk, start talking about man, um, we, just start, we just start saying the most uh, negative, um, pushing down kind of things that we can do, and, and there can be this um, pendulum swing to, well, this must mean that, that we're worthless and that, and that we don't matter, and so we're just going to swing the pendulum. Because we have a low view of man, uh, we just, man, people are terrible and we're all rotten, and, and uh, man can't believe that, I mean, what was God even doing creating us? We're just a mess, all right? So we can't swing the pendulum all the way over from a low view of man and have that lead into, well, then I just, I just don't matter to God. Uh, there's a very specific reason that all of us matter to God um, and that all people matter to God. And that reason is found in Genesis 1. We're going to read verses 26 and 27. Uh, this, is, this leads us to a right view of man and not a twisted view of man. Genesis 1:26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Come to Genesis 1 and we find the story of creation. Um, Throughout the earlier verses in Genesis 1, we find out that God created every living thing and and every plant the sun and the moon and the stars, simply by doing what? Simply by speaking. All right. So out of nothing, God created everything simply by using words. So before God's creation, there, w- there was nothing that existed. There was no earth. There was no sky. Uh, there was nothing. And yet into, into that nothingness, God simply spoke. He said, let there be light, and there's light. He says, let there be day, and there's day. Uh, and so we go through all the six days of creation. When we get to verse number 26, we've come to the sixth day. And if we had been reading Genesis 1, when we hit verse 26, we would notice a, a distinct change from the pattern that had been coming along. And this really helps us to understand that, that the creation of man in God's image was a deliberate choice. All right? You need to know that tonight, that the way God created us and his creation in his image was his choice. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, the image of the image of God in mankind. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we can see that it was a deliberate choice. God says in verse uh, 26, God says, as if he's talking to himself, let us make man in our image. And this is the first time in the story that we kind of break away from the pattern of, of there being a first day, and then God says, let there be something, and something is. Uh, that had been happening. We didn't have any of this dialogue back and forth. You just have God saying, let something exist, and all of a sudden it exists. And then God says, okay, that was good. And the next day comes along, and he says, uh, let there be fish in the sea. And boom, all of a sudden there's fish in the sea. And God says, oh, that was good too. 
And that pattern just continues until we get down to the creation of man. And for the first time, we, we get a peek, we get an insight into what God was thinking at creation. And this highlights for us the fact that the creation of man was a, was a deliberate choice from God. He shows us. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And you might be asking yourselves, uh, did the translators, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, and you're saying the ESV translators uh, kind of messed up here. They were really bad at English. They didn't understand that because God is only one, you should use uh, singular, and it should, it should say, um, let, let me make man in my image after my likeness. Uh, but actually, all of your Bibles all have that plural, and you say, why is that? Well, at the very least, at the very least, this is a hint into the Trinity, all the way back in Genesis 1, where you, where you have God talking to himself, and he says, Let's, let us make man in our image. Is God just using some kind of plural uh, hypothetical? He's using like the evangelical we. Have you ever heard that? Like evangelists, they like to say, well, we were on a plane the other day, and we were witnessing to somebody. And you're like, uh, just you and who else? Not just me, uh, but I've heard people, preachers sometimes, they just say we. Uh, they they just mean themselves. They say, is that what God's doing here? He's just saying, he's saying we, and really he just means me. Well, I think a better indication is that this is a hint at the Trinity. It doesn't say uh, God the Father said to God the Son, who agreed with God the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, we don't have that level of detail, but at the very least, we have a hint that God can refer to himself with plurality. Uh, and so we see this insight where God says this decision. Well, let's make man in our image after our likeness. There was a very deliberate choice and a very... Um, this is a very distinct difference from all of the rest of the creation that God had already done. And that just hints at the fact that God's creation of man is, is going to be a very distinct creation that's going to separate him from all of the rest of creation. God has this conversation with himself, and he is particularly intentional about creating man, and not just creating man, but creating man in his own image. It's important for us to remember as we view man that because God is the creator, he has the right and the power to determine what part of his creation would be uniquely created in his own image. All right? this, is a, this is a choice that God made simply because he wanted to. Um, no one was forcing God to make, to make man. Um, no one was forcing God to make man in his image. No one said, uh, you have to do it this way. And God said, I, I want to make man my creation that is in my image. He chose, and it was a very deliberate choice, and we get that insight from Genesis 1:26. And verse 27 just tells us very matter-of-factly. Um, God said, let's do this. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God did exactly what he had decided to do. He created people in his own image. It's interesting that it says male and female, he created them. Again, right away from the start of creation, this is a way that we look at mankind. We can, we can authoritatively say from this verse, male and female are equally in the image of God. All right? there, is, there is no distinction where men are more in the image of God or ladies are more in the image of God. Both, it says, are equally male and female. He created them, and both are in the image of God. It was his choice that he had done. Well, what are some indications of what this image of God looks like? Well, what this image of God looks like, this deliberate choice that God made, was to make a distinct creation. All right, That was his deliberate choice, to make a distinct creation. All of the rest of Genesis sets apart man over every other creation. It does so by detailing the creation account more about people. So do you know what happens in Genesis chapter 2? 
Genesis 1 finishes off the seven days of creation. Genesis 2 kind of goes on rewind, and it goes back and it gives us more details about the creation of man. Uh, That in itself shows a unique attention to mankind, to this distinct creation. And then, of course, we have the whole of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, that focuses on mankind in a unique way. All right, the rest of Scripture is not a is not a nature book about animals. Uh, it's it's not a geological book about Earth. Uh, it's a book particularly having to do with man and how man relates to God. And this shows a a distinct creation. And you say, I mean, that's kind of it's kind of dumb. Like it's kind of apparent, right? Uh, well, we live in a day and age that it's not so apparent as as it once was. Uh, I didn't think that, you know, it should be necessary that someone would ever have to say human beings are not the same as animals and they don't have the same value as animals. Uh, But we live in a day where that no longer does um, go to be understood. Um, Thanks to the teaching of evolution and um, the inroads of that kind of thinking, we have the idea that mankind is a different order of animal, but an animal nonetheless. And so uh, we, we managed to evolve a little bit better. Uh, we were a little more fitter in the survival of the fittest, but after all, we are still just animals. Uh, we need to understand from Scripture that that view is false. Actually, we are made in the image of God, and that means that we are a distinct creation. It also means that we have more value than animals. And there are a couple of passages that, that even point that out. Our, our Lord even said that. Uh, let's just look real quickly at Matthew 10:31. If we want to know what is God's perspective of mankind, of, of his creation, um, then we can look at the creation account and see how he values man. We can also see uh, throughout the rest of Scripture his view of people. So we're not going to take an extensive look at these passages, but uh, just, to, just to see Christ's perspective of people, you get to Matthew 10, 31, where you will, we will find ourselves in the year 2012 as we work through the book of Matthew. And uh, you get to Matthew 10, 31, and Jesus is talking about not needing to be afraid. And he says in verse 31, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus has been talking about, look, my father knows all the hairs on your head. In fact, he knows every single bird that dies. And almost this kind of sarcastic and, and, I mean, hang in there person that you can really believe that God cares about you because you're of more value than, than a whole lot of sparrows. And it's almost kind of this sarcastic, funny look from Christ. Um, you're more important than a whole bunch of birds. Uh, and it's Christ's way, in this, in this account, it was his way of saying, look, God cares about you in a very personal and a very real way. God knows everything about you, and he cares a lot about you. And, and he says, you're of more value than many sparrows. You see, how we look at people and how we look at animals, how we look at creation, uh, actually has a bearing on how much we trust our God. Uh, same thing in Matthew 12. We'll just flip over two chapters since we're still in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 12:12. 12, 12. They were having a discussion uh, there was a man in the synagogue who was there on the Sabbath, and again, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're trying to find a way to accuse him, and Jesus tells a story. He asked them, all right, if any of you guys have a sheep, and uh, your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, aren't you going to go rescue your sheep instead of letting it die? And of course, they're saying, well, it's against the Sabbath regulations to work, but if your sheep falls in a pit... If your ox is in the ditch, uh, you're going to get him out. You're going to rescue him. And here's, here's Christ's point from that, from that question of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. All right. Again, this is Christ's point, And like I said, it's painfully obvious, but uh, you're more valuable than a sheep is. And we live in a day and age where uh, 
uh, there aren't people that would agree with that kind of thinking. In fact, I think it was just two weeks ago, I saw this on the news. Did you guys see this on the news? There's a guy here in California, and he went to jail for two years. And do you know what he had done that deserved him two years in jail? He shot his neighbor's dog. All right, so because he killed a dog, he went to jail for two years. Now, I'm certainly not condoning killing your neighbor's dog, all right? Don't go kill your neighbor's dog um, because you're more valuable. And yes, especially those of you who have a neighbor whose dog is particularly loud in the evening, as some of you in this general area might have, all right? Not a good idea. But uh, we live in a day and age when there is this value that's placed on animals, um, thanks to people for the ethical treatment of animals and all of that kind of thinking, um, we have this really twisted mindset that somehow animals and people are on the same playing field. And yet the creation account, the obvious testimony of Scripture is we are a distinct creation and we need to understand ourselves in that light. Uh, that doesn't mean that the rest of creation is unimportant. doesn't mean that it's poorly made. doesn't mean it's disposable. It just means that mankind is the only created thing that is in God's image, that God has set us apart as a distinct creation. We have responsibilities, though, for the rest of that creation. And I think there we can find a hint into what it is to be the image of God. Back to Genesis 1. Back to Genesis 1, there is a direct connection between being in the image of God and the rest of creation. In fact, you get to verse number 28, and we read that God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right, I want you to reproduce. I want there to be humans everywhere on the earth, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so you have this, you have this statement from God, I want, you to, I want you, Adam and Eve, to be in charge of everything that's on the earth. And that was, that was a direct result from man being in the image of God because only man was going to be capable and set apart to be the one who would rule over the earth. Part of God's plan in the creation of man was actually for man to rule as his representative here on earth. It was part of the obligation, the responsibility to stand in God's stead as the, as the worker, as the keeper over the earth. All right? That was part of being in the image of God. Humans aren't superior to the rest of creation um, because of some kind of physical difference. Uh, we are not superior because we are always stronger than all the rest of creation. Um, we are we're not able to jump higher, to run faster, um, to, to lift stronger burdens than all the rest of the creation. Um, the reason we are set apart is because we are made in the image of God. God's image makes mankind special. It sets us apart as a distinct creation. What exactly does it mean then that we are in the image of God and how does it matter to us? Well, what it means to be in the image of God is that man is like God and represents him. You can look back in Genesis 1:26 as we read God's plan for man, and he says, let's make man in our image after our likeness. In some way, then, it has to be it is readily apparent that in some way we are like God. There is a similarity between us and God. And so the question always is, and there has been many questions about this particular verse, how is it that we are like God? And there is a plethora of views of how humans are like God. And just to kind of cut through all, all of those different ideas and all those different ramifications, I think the best understanding of the image of God is, is 
a, a very natural way of viewing what man is and what man does. All right? What man in the image of God cannot mean is that we look like God. Okay? Why can that not be the case? Why is it not that we look like God? Okay, because God is spirit, all right? And we know that God is spirit, and so that means he doesn't have a body, all right? So God doesn't actually have eyes. God doesn't actually have hands. He doesn't have feet. He's a spirit, um, and as a spirit, he's in a whole different class of being um, than the human body, all right? We're not talking about a physical kind of likeness. I think that's also apparent because it says that God made male and female both in the image of God. Uh, And so both of both... Um, sexes are equally in the image of God. So we're not talking about something physical. And all of us in this room, not only male and female are different, but all of us in this room are all a little bit different, right? Uh, I mean, we have some of the same components, and some of those components are better put together than for some of the rest of us. But we all kind of have the same, we all have some of the same features, but we all look a little bit different. Uh, so there isn't, there isn't like a model human who looks the most uh, like God does, all right? Uh, so we're not talking about a physical likeness. There isn't like a perfect height. Uh, I happen to think it would be 5'9 if, if there was a perfect height. But there isn't like a perfect height that is the most godlike. All right, we're not talking about a physical characteristic. What we're talking about is that man is like God morally, mentally, rationally, and even relationally. And all those unique attributes that make up our souls, who we are on the inside, God created man to be like him in a way that he didn't create the rest of creation to be like him. This image of God in man gives man the ability to rule over all of the rest of creation. And so we see that mankind have unique mental abilities. Um, We have unique emotional and spiritual abilities. Um, God made mankind capable of rational thought in a way that he he didn't give that to animals. Uh, God, God made us able to make decisions, to weigh alternatives, to understand consequences. And I think that all fits under the idea of the image of God. He gave us the ability um, to write books, to talk with languages, um, to, to come up with medicine. Uh, you, don't, you don't see those things in all the rest of creation. And there's, I think there's a very perfect, perfectly rational explanation of why we don't see dogs building great big cities. Uh, they're not in the image of God. That's, that's not how he made them. They don't have that component in them, and yet we do. We have the ability to learn. Um, we have the ability emotionally uh, to feel things that no animal ever would. The rest of creation can't. Um, we can know happiness and sadness and thankfulness and patience and anger and a myriad of other feelings, and all of those things are a reflection, a likeness to how God is. You see, mentally, we have a similarity to God in our ability to think and to process and emotionally, we have a likeness to God who has the ability to feel. Um, there are some people who would, who would teach that God never has any feelings. And I think that the whole of Scripture testifies against that, where we see the psalmist saying that God delights in his people's obedience. We see the fact that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can actually bring him sadness and, and bring him despair, a grief, pain. Uh, Those are things that God can feel, and he made us like him in those different ways. Spiritually, only mankind has a living soul. Only humans will live forever, either with God or separated from him. And so for those of you parents who are teaching your kids that all dogs go to heaven because you don't want to explain what happened when your dog died, uh, you just need to know that that didn't make it into Scripture and that actually only people are the ones with eternal souls. All right? Uh, 
What happens when an animal dies is that it dies and it's dead. What happens when a person dies? When, when you die, uh, your body goes into the ground and yet you continue to exist because God made you with a soul because you are in the image of God. You see, God lives forever and so he made us like him, which is having the ability to go on past death. Ours, of course, is conditioned on God's grace. God goes on forever because he's self-existent. And yet something he gave to humans, uh, the ability to be like him in those ways. And so the image of God in man includes all the mental and emotional and spiritual abilities that we possess. That's the image of God. We are like God in an ability to think and to feel and to act morally. So we're, we're personal, spiritual beings with moral responsibility. And Genesis would teach us that we well resemble our God. We need to remember in all of this that there's a lot of obvious limitations to that, however. Right? What are some obvious limitations to our likeness to God? All right? Let's just think together about some of them. What are some obvious limitations between us and our likeness to God? All right? So, for instance, some of you are thinking, a lot of times I'll begin a prayer, and when we talk about the holiness of God, we use the same concept. We say, uh, God, there's, there's no one like you. And now we're saying the image of God means that there's likeness to God. Is this double talk? Uh, what's, what's going on here? Is, are we like God or are we not like God? What are some limitations to ways we are like God? Okay, we can't know the future. So God gave us minds. He gave us brains, the ability to think. And yet we can't think beyond time. All right? So there is no human who is like God with the ability to think beyond time. Uh, God, is, God is above time and over time. And so past, present, future, it's all alike to God. It's not all alike to us. We have a very clear-cut uh, limit, and our limit ends in the present, and we can't look into the future, all right? So there's a way that we're like God. We have the ability to think, and yet we can't think past the now. We don't have that ability to see into the future, all right? What are other limitations that there are ways that we're like God, but he is in a class all of his own? And that's what we're talking about with the holiness of God. Okay, we can't create things. And so God gave us the ability to be imaginative, and he gave us the ability to come up with, with so many things. So we've come up with buildings and cars and inventions, and, and we've discovered all these things, and we even, uh, we even say some people are really creative. We write stories, and we write books, and we do movies, and we do all these things, and yet we actually don't have the, the ability to create something, some mass, out of nothing. We just work with what we already have. And when God creates, he actually creates out of nothing. So we have a likeness to God. The fact that we have the ability to think up things and to try to put them into place and we can you know, build our robots and, and do all those things. And yet we can't create in the same way that God can. But you can see how there's a likeness to us and to God that is distinct for humans as opposed to any of the rest of God's creation. All right, good. Anybody else thinking of one? Okay, we can't be everywhere at once. Uh, so God is... God is present at every place that exists, uh, and we are only present in, in this place. And yet there is still that similarity of likeness to God, that God did create us with the ability to be somewhere, and that where is here. Uh, but God is present everywhere in space. And so God is, is unbound, he's unlimited, and we are limited. So God is in a class all by himself when it comes to where he is. Uh, we just don't fit into that category of being everywhere at the same time. Okay, good. Anybody else? You want to do another one? Okay, all-knowing. Uh, there's another connection to our ability to know and to think. We can learn, and we can discover new facts, and we are always in the process of learning and scientific discovery and all those things, and yet God has always known everything that is true without ever being taught. 
And so he's in a class all of his own. But he made us like him, having the ability to know things. All right? Good. Okay, good. We have, some, we have limited control over some things that are ours. You know, we can't control the universe. Uh, I was even talking to the kids this morning um, because we were studying from Matthew 8 about Jesus calming the storm that was on the sea. So we talked about Hurricane Ike. And with all of our modern inventions, with all of our modern marvels, the only thing that we could do about Hurricane Ike was what? Run away and hide, all right? I mean, that's it. That's it. You just get away from it. You can't stop it. You can't prevent it. We don't have a hurricane, uh, a hurricane cannon. You know, we have hail cannons, so we just need to invent a hurricane cannon to shoot that bad boy out of the sky. We don't have anything like that, all right? Uh, we don't have the ability to control even the events that happen in our universe, and yet God does. So, again, there's ways that we're like God, and yet there are very obvious limitations to that, all right? Again, uh, God doesn't have a body, so again, there's a, there's a limited way that, our, that we can be like God in that way. And yet the point is that God clearly places a high value on man. He makes us unique and accurately like him, even if it's in a limited way. All right, So it's unique, but it's still accurate. There's still ways that we are accurately like God. And every way we are like God are ways that we realize that we are in his image. All right? All these things, even though they're limited, are ways that God made you special and unique in his own image, with, with his likeness. And that puts us into a different class, and that puts a unique importance on mankind. And we need to think about ourselves in that light. So we don't think ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, we're in the image of God, but that doesn't mean that we are little gods. Uh, it doesn't mean that God has a body, like the Mormons would teach, that we, actually, we are actually in God's image because God actually has a body just like just like you or I do, all right? Such is not the case, but we are like God with our mental, emotional, our thinking abilities, with all those things that come together that make us like God, okay? We also have another reason that there's a limitation to our likeness to God, and that very obvious limitation is Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter number 3? All right, sin enters into the garden, and we have the fall. And what happened at the fall was the distortion of God's image in mankind. Because all those ways that God made us to be like him um, got severely damaged in the fall. And so think about this. Uh, again, systematic theology, trying to, trying to take a look at the, at the breadth of Scripture. Uh, let's even ta- think about man's intellect. All right? Man's intellect was severely damaged by the fall. Can any of you think of a Bible verse that talks about sin's effect on our minds? All right? Are our minds affected by sin, and how? Any verses come to anybody's mind? How the fall has damaged our minds. Okay, good. You're probably thinking of Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is incurably sick. It's it's desperately it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? We have the inability now to know accurately our hearts because they're so deceitful and they're so tricky and so there's a distortion there i think that verse goes to a lot more than just our mind when the bible uses the term heart it it encompasses like all of the whole of man and so every aspect of us is ruined by sin we're incurably sick we're just shot through with sin on every part of our beings but that certainly includes our minds good other things okay romans one um you have that open All right, you want to read it since you're there? Good. 
Okay, good. Talking about people whose mind, their thinking became absolutely futile and, and their already futile minds became darkened and they became foolish and they started worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Good. That's the effect of sin on our minds. You didn't, you didn't have that um, pre-fall. Right? You didn't have a mind that was twisted and warped by sin. And that same, that same effect has now touches all of our emotions. And so we see Cain, um, not only our thinking, also our emotions. We see Cain. Um, he has the emotion of anger. He twists, the, the, the fall twisted his emotions so he could actually have a feeling that God never intended him to have towards his brother. And he has anger and he kills his brother. All right? So we learn from Scripture there are actually ways that sin has twisted even how we feel. And sin has certainly twisted what we choose. So our thinking, our feeling, our choosing have all been distorted by the fall. Um, they've all been twisted. And yet those are all aspects of God's image that we still have. Um, and even an unsafe person still has the image of God. And yet in redemption, we see a progressive restoration of more of God's image. And I really want you to see this. So go over to Colossians 3.10. And this is part of, the, part of the wonder of this idea of the image of God is that when we read Scripture accurately, you read Genesis 3, and you, you're kind of in despair. Uh, we have marred the image of God. We, are, we, have, we have caused serious harm to it. There's ruin there. How, how can we ever deal with this? Well, we can deal with it by Colossians 3, verse number 10, after it tells us to put away from ourselves all of these things and not lie to each other. Um, we have put on, verse number 10 says, after putting away the old self, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after what? The image of its creator. This is part of the work of salvation that we're actually being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. This is another way we see that this image is not a physical thing. Uh, it takes knowledge. It takes a renewed mind that changes us and actually makes us more like our creator than we were before. That's what's going on for those of you tonight who are Christians. You're becoming more and more like our creator. His image is becoming more evident. And that's why it's important for us to renew our thinking with the word of God. Because when we renew our thinking, we are more in the image of God than we were before. When, when we choose according to what scripture would tell us to choose, and we don't choose our own way, we choose God's way, we're living more in accordance with the image of God that he placed in us. And every time people sin, they're actually departing from the image of God that God has placed within them. And there are lots of other verses that would say these same things. 2 Corinthians 3.18. You don't have to flip over there. I'll just, I'll just read this one for you. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Another great passage on change. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All right, it's talking about sanctification. We're actually becoming more in the image of our Creator, becoming more in the image of our Christ. All right, Romans 8:29 would say the same thing. So redemption is us becoming more and more in the image of God that got ruined and, and damaged by the fall. All right, and one day we talk about glorification. We are going to be completely restored into God's image, God's likeness, the way He intended us to be. So 1 Corinthians 15. Verse number 49 tells us this. 1 Corinthians 15:49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, referring to Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Another passage for us to look forward to with great hope. Um, although now we are continually plagued by sin and the way we are right now, 1 John 3, 2 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have the hope. Our, our hope of glorification is of one day um, having the image of God restored in us the way it was supposed to be. And Christ was the one who demonstrated that to us. What we are, what we are supposed to be as humans is summed up in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to get again. And so there's great hope for us, knowing that God created us in his image, but we fell and we marred that. There's hope for us to have that restored, and that hope is through Christ. And, and one day, we are going to be the exact um, way God made us to be, worshiping him, loving him, being in his likeness. And unfortunately now, there are a lot of ways that mankind is not an accurate representation of who God is. Um, in every way that we are sinful, we have distorted who God is. And so if we look at mankind now, um, we, see, we see war and, and we see crime and we see um, emotional sin, we see choosing sin, um, we see thinking wrongly, um, we see um, not even thinking sinfully, but even just an inability um, to know. We have all these things that are, that are a result of the fall. And we ha- can have the confidence and the hope that one day all those things are going to be dealt with and that no longer people are going to choose sin. I mean, there's a day coming when you are never going to choose sin again. You are always going to choose righteousness. And that day is coming in the, in the heavenly kingdom. Uh, there is a day when you are never going to have a wrong feeling ever again. You are, you are never going to feel like you don't want to obey God. You're never going to feel like you don't want to fellowship with God. You're never going to feel upset with another Christian. Uh, There's a day coming when all that is going to be done away with because we are all going to have the image of God restored in us. Uh, And that's a glorious day, and it's a great day for us to look forward to and have hope in. Knowing the image of God in us uh, changes how we look at ourselves, and it also changes how we look at God's Word. There is importance in knowing that we're in God's image. And let me just conclude with just some practical application, Um, we need to know that the image of God places unique importance on man, and that likeness carries great expectations. Because we are made in God's likeness, there are at least a couple things that we need to understand. First of all, we must respect all humans as well as meet God's expectations for us. So, for instance, in the book of Genesis, um, later on in chapter 9, God's blessing Noah, and the flood had just wiped out the whole world, And all the people and animals, the only ones who were alive, came from the ark. So God promises to Noah that he's not going to destroy the earth. And he gave Noah some instructions. And he told him that he could have any animal, he could kill any animal that he wanted to, and he could eat it. But just as quickly as God said, you can kill any animal you want and you can eat it, just as quickly he said, but you cannot kill another human. And Genesis 9.5 tells us why God told Noah he's not allowed to kill another human. And what was that reason in Genesis 9.5? God says, I will, I will account, I will require reckoning for the life of man because man is made in the image of God. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There is a reason for respect of mankind. There's a reason we can't just go killing each other. Uh, and that reason is we're in the image of God. So go kill your cow and let's have some good steak tonight. Uh, I would really enjoy that. Uh, but you can't, have that, you can't have that same perspective on people because people are uniquely in the image of God. There's a reason for respect. And way beyond simply not murdering, we must also respect and appreciate all people. Um, all people are made in the image of God. And I think this is absolutely the best biblical reasoning of, of why racism and ethnic hatred is so evil and so abhorrent to God. 
All right? There's a reason that slavery was horrendous. There's a reason that, that prejudice is wrong. It's not because our culture says it's wrong. It's not because this is a hot-button issue. Um, there's a reason that it's wrong, that it's actually sin for you to have um, racial feelings towards someone, whether they're black or Hispanic or white or Asian or any other thing. Um, there's a reason. And that reason is all of us are made in the image of God. And so we must have a mutual respect for each other because all of us are equally in the image of God. There is no ethnicity that is any more or any less in the image of God. This is the theological reason, the basis for our respect for all mankind. Racism, bigotry, hatred, and even rudeness or unkindness are unacceptable sins against people who are made in the likeness of God. In fact, we read from the book of James uh, that James says it's ludicrous that the same tongue can bless man or can bless God, but curse man. And what is man? Well, he's made in the likeness of God. That's James 3.9. He says it's ludicrous that you can bless God, but you can curse man who's made in the image of God. Um, and so even our speech towards other people um, needs to be filtered through our understanding that we are all made in the image of God. God's image in man demands respect, and it makes human life precious. All human life is precious. Not only should there be respect, there is also responsibility. And we'll conclude with this one last passage, Mark 12. Let's flip over there, Mark 12. In Mark 12, yet another case where the religious leaders are trying to trip up our Christ, and uh, they send some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him, uh, Mark 12, verse number 13. And they come to him and they say, Teacher, this is just amazing how they talk to our Christ, isn't it? Uh, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. They're just laying on the sap. You are so wonderful. You, you blaze your own trail. You're such an individual. You don't care about anyone else's opinion. All right, and this is just the nice little setup and they're waiting to, to put on the kill. All right, so they set them up. We know that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, they are laying it on thick. You just, you just say it the way it is. And, and now the setup. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And instantly the sap takes on a very deadly edge. Because if Christ at this point says, you know what, you really shouldn't pay your taxes. Um, there, there's no need to do that. Uh, then what you have is riot and revolt. You have the religious leaders having the opportunity to say that Jesus Christ, he's just a political rabble rouser. He, he's trying to subvert the authority of Rome and we're going to call the Romans and we're going to deal with you. Right? If Jesus says you should pay your taxes and that is the right thing to do and you should just submit to the Roman government, then you have the Jewish people who are instantly going to discredit whatever Jesus has to say and say we don't care about this guy that the Romans were oppressing them and were holding them down and, and they hated the Romans. The Jewish people hated the Romans. And so the religious leaders are thinking, we've got him. And I mean, this was a great idea. I mean, someone sat around for a long time before they came up with this question. All right. Uh, so they think we've got him. Uh, there's no way he's getting out of this one. And of course, you guys know the story. Uh, knowing their hypocrisy in verse 15, Jesus says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He says, bring me a coin. So they bring him one, and he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? All right, he holds up the coin, and he says, who's on this thing? And they said to him, Abraham Lincoln's. Oh, no. Uh, they said to him, Caesar's, all right? Uh, what's, what's, what's on this coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar. It looks like Caesar. It's not that it is Caesar, but, I mean, it looks like him, his image and his likeness. And, he said, and they said, well, it's Caesar's. 
And so Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What's he talking about? What are the things that are Caesar's? The money, all right? Give to Caesar the things that are his. They've got his image on it. They've got his likeness. So give him what's his. But then what does he say? And give to God the things that are God's. What are the things that are God's? They're the things that bear his image. Just like that coin bore the image of Caesar, and so Jesus could say, just give to Caesar the stuff that is his. In that exact same way, in the same breath, Jesus turns around and says, but do you know what you need to give to God? You need to give back to him the things that are his. And you know the things that are God's? They're the things that have his stamp, that have his image on them. And that's you, and that's me. We bear the image of God. And so there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility placed on us to return to God what is his. He will hold us responsible for the love and obedience we're supposed to show to him. We are made in his image, and so we will bear his judgment in a unique way in the future. In the present, God expects right belief and right conduct from the people he made to be in his image. There is a moral responsibility that rests on you and that rests on me because we are made in the image of God. Talking about the image of God is not some theological rabbit trail. It's not some esoteric discussion. It's actually crucial for us, especially in our day and age, to think accurately about who we are and how God looks at us. God looks at you and he says, that one's in the image of me. He bears likeness to me. And the question is, what are you doing to be more in the image of God? Are you following him with obedience? so that his thoughts are becoming more and more your thoughts? Are you renewing your mind with scripture so that you are actually thinking less like the fallen human and, and more like having the mind of Christ in you? Are you intentionally choosing to obey God so that instead of following your own way, instead of being like all the sheep who go astray and they go after their own way, that actually you are walking in the steps that God has for you, that you are walking in the spirit? Um, those responsibilities are on you and they're on me tonight because we are made in the image of God. So there is value and there is a necessary obedience that, that, is, that is hanging on all of us tonight because we're made in the image of God.